This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. How many times have we heard that well-quoted phrase, the good that one does lives on after them? Well, I think we often equate that with some victorious leader or patriot, perhaps a head of state exploring new frontiers, leading the way to uncharted territories. You know what I mean. In your mind, you can visualize this person who, when he walks into the room, he commands your attention. Well, today I want to tell you about the life of a man who was born over 300 years ago, but he doesn't quite fit that image. Quite the opposite. He was a humble man, and seeing him pass, you would scarcely give him a second look. The way he was dressed, his shabby clothes, his outward appearance, and yet these centuries later, he is still remembered and his efforts recognized. Recognized so well that from his devotions to the Blessed Mother, Pope John Paul II took as his motto, if you will, the phrase, totus tuus, totally yours. The Holy Father acknowledged that this simple, unassuming priest's legacy played a vital role in his own devotion to the Mother of God. In fact, in the late 1990s, John Paul the Great visited this man's tomb where he said, I am happy to begin my pilgrimage in France under the sign of this great figure. You know that I owe much to this saint and to his true devotions to the Blessed Virgin. End of quote. And during Vatican II, centuries after he literally trod this earth in other simplicity, Gerard Phillips, who was working on the document known as Lumen Gentium, acknowledged that the writings of this man was present in his mind as he was busy editing a part of that document. And down through the centuries, bishops, cardinals, and even popes have acknowledged the impact this simple priest had on the church. In fact, a few decades ago, a a petition was written over the signatures of a number of superiors of religious organizations, as, as well as bishops and cardinals, requesting that this simple and holy man be declared a doctor of the church. But how did all of this come about? What made him so very special? Well, that's our story for today. Louis Grignon was born on the 31st of January in 1673 in a small town in France. And as was the custom of the time, he was baptized the following day in a parish church known as the Church of St. John. It's interesting to note that years before, St. Vincent Ferrer had prayed at this very same church, which was in ruins at the time, and he prophesied at the time that from this little church there would come from it a mighty missionary. The man's mother was to have many children, and his father was a rather hostile man who made his living as a type of barrister in the area of Montfort. Well, Lewis's father and the parish priest provided for his family's training and education, and Lewis proved an eager and bright student, recognizing even at a very young age that learning took work and that many sacrifices were necessary if one was to succeed, and even if that meant giving up the fun of the moment to work on your studies. 
His favorite class was religion, and he took great delight in sharing his knowledge of God and the catechism with the other children. He had learned at a very early age that study just didn't happen, and it took work. And in order to learn, it was necessary that he would have to, well, he would have to forego many pleasures of childhood if he would be able to succeed in later years. His father acquired an estate complete with a manor house and two farms situated in a tranquil and beautiful setting where the young man could enjoy quietly exploring the wonders of God. And while his father was irascible at times, young Lewis would be there to comfort his mother with a logic and reason far exceeding his age. Perhaps Lewis's love for his own mother was heightened by his love for the mother of God. His biographers tell of his devotion to his heavenly mother, starting, as they would later recount, probably with his birth. And even as the oldest child, they would write that he seemed to try to assume the worries of his parents and carry these worries to his heavenly mother, whom he was confident would hear his prayers and answer them. Well, history does not give us too many stories of his earliest years, other than he was sent away to school when he was 12 years old to a large institution with perhaps two or 3,000 students. And remarkably, it was free. Children of means, as well as children of the poor, were in attendance, and while many languages were taught, most of the classes were actually taught in Latin. The teacher who influenced him the most was a saintly priest named Father Gilbert. Now, boys the age of Lewis could be quite rowdy, and Lewis himself had a decided temper, but he watched the gentleness with which the good priest responded to the pranks played on him by many of the students, and he learned to please God by always tempering his own anger and following the gentle example of Father Gilbert, an example he would carry with him for the rest of his life. To help build strong sensitivity for his later life, one of the priests recruited boys to visit the sick in hospitals. Well, of course, Lewis quickly joined the group, but added a new dimension. He would also visit the sick in their homes as well. He would go out of his way to be of help to anyone in need, and yet in his class of about 400 students, Lewis would always be at the top of his class. While he loved nature and yearned for the opportunity to be alone and commune with God, the countryside did not offer him that opportunity, so he sought his peace and contact with God in the silence of his own heart and soul. By the time he was 20, his fellow classmates at school were being tempted by the wiles of the outside world. Lewis, who had developed such a close relationship with God, coupled with his love for the Madonna, scarcely understood what these wildly temptations of the world actually were. When looking at the life of Lewis, I have to mention that we owe a debt of gratitude to John Baptiste Blaine, 
who was one of only two close friends of Lewis in school, but he and Blaine became lifelong friends, and after Lewis's death, Blaine recorded for posterity much of Lewis's life that would otherwise have been lost. Going to back to what I mentioned about the temptations of the day, Blaine told of a conversation with Lewis when they were just 20 years of age, and Blaine worried about temptations of the flesh. In all innocence, Lewis asked what they were. On another occasion, Blaine spoke of Lewis's battle to always keep his temper under control and cited the time they were having dinner on Shrove Tuesday when another friend burst in inviting them to join them in a wild and worldly evening. Lewis left the room lest his temper lose control on such a holy occasion. In college, there was a young man who was a student from a very poor family and was forced to wear clothes that were definitely ragged and threadbare and the objects of unkind remarks from other students with scathing comments that obviously the young man could hear. When Lewis saw what was happening, he took it upon himself to beg for money to help the fellow And while he was collecting a fair amount, it wasn't quite enough. But he took it to the tailor, and Lewis said, I have collected this amount of money for a new suit for this man. Now, it's up to you to provide the rest. Well, the tailor must have been impressed because the young man got his new suit. And on one occasion, Lewis went to visit at the home of his friend Blaine, who was puzzled by Lewis's frequent absences, and and when he left, Blaine followed him. Lewis was visiting beggars, sharing what he had with them, and not content to just give them money and, and leave, he would hug them before he left. He was wanting to impress on them that they were important, that he cared, and and that he wanted them to have a better image of themselves, and that Christ, too, was also poor and often despised. It was while he was still in college that his deepening devotions became even more important. Near the college was a church with a statue dedicated to Our Our Lady of Peace. It always seemed to beckon him, and he would visit it before almost every class, where he would speak with his heart, to his blessed mother. He would tell her of his worries, his problems, his dreams, and he would seek her counsel as to what he should do and what path he should follow throughout his life. Many years after college, he would confide to a close friend that she made it clear to him that he should become a priest. Oh, he would not be specific, but he would say that she made it very clear to him that she was calling him to the priesthood. And as it has been made clear, it would not be an easy way, but that his priesthood would be another Via Dolorosa. His family had once been well off, but with so many children as well as business reversals, the family did not have the means to finance his continuing education. But an old family friend appeared and agreed to finance the entrance into the seminary, and so Louis left for the seminary in Paris on foot. God made this opportunity possible, and he had to show his gratitude by walking. 
The family had given him a new suit, they had given him some money, and also some other new clothes to take with him. Well, he gave the money to the first poor man he saw, gave his clothes to those in need, and traded the new suit he was wearing for the clothes of a beggar. Well, one could only imagine that he was following the example of St. Francis of Assisi. One has to give up everything to really gain everything. And Paris would be his address for the next ten years. He would start his preparation for the priesthood at a small seminary that had, had been organized for those seminarians who were poor, and the students were taught that they should feel no pain for being poor and accept it as a gift from God. The winter of 1693 found the poor starving, and, and even the rich were feeling the pressures of the poor economy. Lewis and many of his associates had to find work to supplement their meager funds, and since so many people were facing economic hardships, they had to settle for the more difficult and unappealing jobs, such as watching over corpses awaiting burial. Well, it helped Lewis to a degree to survive, but he still give a, gave away more than he kept for his own use to those who, who were in greater need than he. And only those who watched him very carefully were aware of the many sacrifices he was making to the poor and the needy. And yet despite having been born with a temper, he controlled his demeanor with perfect calm and trust in God. It would be this way for the entire rest of his life. One of the students would later tell that they had knocked at his door one night when he was praying, and as he opened the door, the student couldn't help but notice that a strange light seemed almost out of this world appeared to surround him. His previous seminary was closed, and he was transferred to another even poorer than the first. Well, the sacrifices and mortifications that he would offer to Almighty God were so severe that he began to suffer from malnutrition, and he became hospitalized. But because of his whole demeanor, the attending sisters would refer to him simply as their sick saint. Because of his reputation and the generosity of those who were there helping and, and noticing his sacrifices, well, it made it possible for him to attend the St. Sulpice Seminary, and there his favorite pastime, or even what might be called idle conversation, focused always, almost entirely, on the lives of Christ and that of his Blessed Mother. More and more he felt a less than subtle direction that this is what God was willing for him to do, to call attention to the power and glory that was given Mary and of God's desire to make her even better known and loved throughout the entire world. To accomplish this, he started in his earlier years writing a book, The Treatise on True Devotions to the Blessed Virgin. And now he felt it was time for him to organize a group of, of association of the slaves of Mary. That would be the name, but a faculty advisor suggested that he change the name to Association of Slaves to Jesus Through Mary. 
which he would reluctantly accept, but that he would carefully explain that Mary was in reality a creature in God's hands, created by God, and that everything given to her, all honor and glory, well, it would simultaneously also be given to God, and most importantly, a slave of Mary would also be a slave of God. To him, Mary would always be his very special friend and a real person. She was not just a name in a book, but a real person, and he would put his trust in her. In short, when you glorify Mary, you are glorifying God. It seems that just about everywhere Lewis went, good would follow. For example, once he came upon two men who hated each other violently and were about to start a duel with swords that that would end with the death of one of the combatants. Seeing what was happening, he grabbed for the crucifix he was wearing and stepped between the two men. He challenged in the name of God what they were about to do. And so persuasive was his arguments that they threw down their weapons and one even entered the seminary. Well, Lewis's life in the seminary was difficult, not because of any defect on his part, but because he was deliberately being tested far beyond what was customary. Few of the seminarians would have been able to survive the challenges, and and yes, even the insults that were hurled his way. And not all of these were done to be cruel, but to be a test of his character. He studied diligently, and for a time, even at the Sorbonne, one of the most respected colleges in the world. Then he was named librarian at St. Sulpice's Seminary, and in thoughtlessness, while well, some of his contemporaries even looked at him as being less than fit for his new responsibilities, and certainly unfit to match wits with the respected professors of the Sorbonne. Well, that is, until the time he was to debate with the thesis, the subject of grace. It was to be a battle royal, one man debating what might be an army of intellectuals, or that's what they thought. But it appeared that he was to be a more forceful adversary than they ever imagined, practically quoting the writings of St. Augustine, which he seemed to have memorized. He countered every question raised, every argument, and explicitly overcame all of their objections, statements or feelings, and, and was the decided winner in the battle of wits with some of the some of the brightest intellects in Paris. Even though he was to live in Paris for a period of about ten years, as I mentioned, he would keep his roots in the little town of his birth. His last name was Grignon, but he would refer to himself simply as Louis Mary of Montfort. And after his ordination, he would also be happily known simply as the priest from Montfort even though he lived there for only a couple of years. Now, as we know, Paris was the city of lights with a myriad of attractions that brought people from literally all over the world to see them. However, however Louis of Montfort, or as they would say in France, Louis de Montfort, 
never took the time away from his studies or duties to the poor to visit any of these attractions. He was too busy doing God's work, helping the poor, or devouring the books under his care in the university library, where he devoted a great deal of attention to studying the writings of saints. Thomas Aquinas, Francis de Sales, Bernard of Clairvaux, and the fathers of the church as well as becoming a man of the Bible. During his reading and studying, he became more convinced that he was being called to to spread devotions to the rosary, which prompted him to write his now well-known treatise, The Secret of the Rosary. Perhaps the happiest day of his life was when he celebrated his first Mass, which took place on June 5, 1700. I think it's also important to mention that upon his ordination, he had spent a total of 16 years preparing for that moment at the age of 27. A few months later, he joined the Third Order of the Dominicans, where he took as a major responsibility the opportunity to preach missions to the poor, and it was at this time that he sought permission to preach missions with a small company of priests under the protection and standard of the Blessed Virgin, which led to the formation of the Company of Mary. He would then spend several years preaching in missions in and around Paris and Nantes, as well as devoting much of his time and energy, continuing to assist the poor, the destitute, and the sick in in the huge general hospital in Paris. Though he was busy doing God's work, he worked tirelessly attending the needs of the underprivileged, even at the expense of his own health, which deteriorated to the point that he became weak and exhausted from constantly being on the move and was admitted to the hospital for a time to recover. Lewis applied to serve as a missionary to Canada, but his superior said he would be lost forever trying to find Indians to convert, and instead he was assigned to St. Clement's in Nantes with which which he was overjoyed with the opportunity and, as usual, walked to his new location with eager anticipation of preaching love for God and his mother and taking that message to all the people. He could hardly contain himself, but when he arrived at St. Clement's, he found many of the priests were too old, and the rules of the community were too relaxed, and the religious there, well, they were looking forward more to resting in their later years rather than the strict adherence to their calling. And to make matters worse, Lewis remained restless, but quiet in obedience. Later, he was sent to another town, and shortly he performed his first recorded miracle, seeing a blind man in church. Well, he went up, and he asked the man if he wished to see, and obviously the man said yes. Well, Lewis prayed and rubbed the man's eyes, and the man saw. Other assignments came and went, assignments that were not pleasant for Lewis, but that he did not deter him from his many acts of heroism and caring for the poor. He himself wore threadbare and faded cassocks, so worn that they barely kept out the coal, but he persevered in one assignment after another, tirelessly performing acts of kindness and and preaching God's word wherever he could. 
the people he served, loved, and, and respected him. In one case, 400 people signed a petition for his return to them. Perhaps because of all of this respect he was receiving, some of the religious were jealous of his success. Some even spread false stories about him, and then he received orders from the bishop to leave his diocese. Well, he would, he would feel that there had to be someone with whom he could appeal, someone he could go and talk to, someone who would listen. And then he had an idea. He would go to Rome and see the Pope. And so he did, and again on foot. During their conversation, Pope Clement recognized Lewis's character as a rare jewel, and while Lewis wished to remain a missionary, the Pope told him that there were many souls needed to be saved in France, and told him to return and preach the gospel there, and appointed him with the title of Apostolic Missionaries. But Lewis returned to France and again became known as the Good Father from Montfort. He was constantly on the move and still on foot, but taking time to continue his writings on the true devotion to Mary, the secret of Mary, and the secret of the rosary. Lewis would work with a follower named Marie-Louise Trichet, who incidentally would one day be named Blessed herself, and together they founded a religious order known as the Daughters of Wisdom an action that would one day be responsible for the statue of Lewis to be placed in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Always on the move, worn down by work and sacrifice, Father Lewis became ill on another mission and died in April of 1716. He was just 43 years old, and while he was a priest for only 16 years, he did much to change the world. To tell all the stories about his life and actions and heroism, well, it would take hours to tell and volumes to write. But perhaps his life could best be summed up in the simple phrase, God alone. And after his death, his writings were discovered, and today they are among the most respected and followed in the entire world. Lewis was beatified by Pope Leo XIII in 1888 and canonized a saint by Pope Pius XII in 1947. He said at that time, I quote, God was everything to him. Remain faithful to the precious heritage which this great saint left you, end of quote. And Pope Leo XIII and Pius X relied on the writings of the good father from Montfort and promoted his visions of devotion to Jesus through Mary. Pope John Paul the Great wrote regarding the true devotions, it was a turning point in my life. Well, when we are restless, just perhaps it would be well to read his true devotions and the secret of the rosary, which certainly were inspired by above. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.